make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. I'm your host, Kaya Alexander. Really excited to welcome today, Ryan Knighton. I want to tell you about Ryan. He's a screenwriter who I met via Twitter, um, and also he's a surfer, so we have a lot of cool things in common. Let me tell you about him. Ryan is an internationally acclaimed blind author, screenwriter, journalist, and performer. His two memoirs, Cockeyed and Come On, Papa, received numerous award nominations, including the Stephen Lelock Medal for Humor. He's contributed to the American radio programs This American Life and The Moth. And he's written for a lot of incredible newspapers like the New York Times, Outside, and Esquire, The Globe, and Mail, Popular, Mechanics, The Observer, The Believer, Men's Health, and more. His travel writing has taken him around the world and earned him two Thomas Lowell Awards, an Eddie Aussie Award, and a James Beard Media Award nomination. He's also a Sundance Screenwriting Lab Fellow and the recipient of the 2009 Alfred Sloan Prize from the Tribeca Film Institute for the feature adaptation of his memoir, Cockeyed, which Ryan Reynolds is attached to direct. As a screenwriter, he's written for Universal Studios, Paramount Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and has created several original pilots for FX. Most recently, He served as a producer writer for three seasons on the network drama In the Dark. He is a sought-after public speaker, storyteller who's performed at theaters and conferences and universities around the world, including NASA, the University of London, UCLA, and MIT. He lives on Vancouver Island in the village of, I'm not going to know how to pronounce this, Ryan. (laughs) Go for it. Give it it a whirl. See See what comes out. You clue it. You clue it. You got it. Oh, amazing. I was like, no way. And surfing <laughs> is his preoccupation. <laughs> Ryan, welcome. That's way too long of a bio. It's a long bio. <laughs> it's a long bio. I'm realizing I need to like tell people 400 words or something like that. But it's also, isn't it kind of wonderful to hear your accomplishments spoken back to you? Isn't it great? I suppose. I, I suppose. You're it also so, just you're feels such a like a self-effacing person, though. Maybe you don't enjoy that at all. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. It just. It just feels like you're writing the back cover blurb of your own novel. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. I, you know, it, one of the things about you that I have really loved as I read cockeyed is you, you are so honest and so self-effacing and you dive so deep into the truth of your own experience. And, uh, it, it's really refreshing. I just wanted to tell you how much I really loved and enjoyed the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's so nice. It's funny because like that book came out, Ooh, I guess it's 15 years ago now. And uh, so now whenever I've seen little chunks of it, for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, I want to go rewrite it. It needs, well, oh, it's it needs always a haircut. Like that. <laughs> it needs it's a haircut. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a novelist as well. And my novel's called Written in the Ashes. It's about the events that led up to the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, Egypt, because I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a history nerd. And I've gone back in because I'm starting to work on the adaptation for it. And I'm like, you know, I want to X out whole passages and start the book in a different oh, yeah. place. And it's like, ah! <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's the hardest thing. It's like... Nobody forewarned you. There's two things that happen when you when you write a memoir that I wasn't aware of. One of them is that writing the memoir actually ossifies your memories. Like that, the way you write it becomes the way you remember it. Oh yeah, of and uh, and that which is really helpful in some ways as a, a human being, and in other ways is is a sort of frustrating rigidity in your memory now. Uh, but the other thing is that. Uh, you know, you write it at a certain time and that also ossifies. It's like, oh, it's expressed as it was by a 30-year-old at that time. And it's like, I think I would write it very differently now. Yeah, how um, interesting. So so be, you careful. Feel like be careful your when memory you has evolved. Yeah, it's just like, I think as you mature, you, you, you look at the past differently. And so the moment you choose to write a memoir about a specific experience uh, is as much what calibrates the the point of view of that book as anything else uh you know you're but who knows who knows if you wait longer if it'll mature into something better for you to write or if you really have to grab the moment when you're not ready to do it because maybe that's what you need to actually get through the work is to be kind of on your off center a little bit you know uncertain if you can pull it off it's like hard so in the, the moment isn't it to really know what's happening in your life it's like only in retrospect do we get to go oh that was what was going on at least that is the way it is for me yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still really believe I don't totally understand what happens to me until I write it down. Um, mm. When it comes to when it comes to big things, there's just uh, I think having written so much first person nonfiction, it's just become part of the jam of how I operate in the world. You journal? No, I don't have time. Nor nor really the inclination. My wife used to like when we were first dating in our our twenties. She journaled all the time, and I always thought it was a peculiar thing. But I think I'm just too. I mean, I I, I guess in a way, <laughs> I want to blame it on the fact that I have working class roots. That it seems very unutilitarian to to journal. It's like why are like you indulgent. writing that if you can't sell it? Yeah, it's like why are you, doing it? you, you can't feed your kid off doing that. You should go try and sell something now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. You know, it, what, one of the things that struck me about the book is two, it's a, it's a story about transformation, your transformation, but it's two transformations simultaneously happening. The first is, of course, you're going blind in your late teens and this whole crazy thing that's happening to you is, is as it's happening when you kind of first deny that it's happening and you don't know it's happening and then your body is undergoing this radical transformation that's going to totally you know change everything for you and then there's your 
you're like, I don't know what else, what other word I have for this to say, like your soul transformation of coming to a place where you actually stop denying that and accept it mm-hmm. and move into embracing it. And you find this whole new path and journey. And then ultimately it brings you back to Tracy, who will become your wife. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, I know what you mean. There's, I, I've sort of looked back at it and realized that um the the change documented in the book was was kind of accidental like i mean i i did set out to write a book about losing my sight and what that's like um so it's really i mean originally we had pitched it as a memoir of blindness and then i realized it's actually not it's a memoir about this weird liminal time between being sighted and being blind and you know my period of that was nearly 10 years like it was maybe eight years of being kind of neither this, neither that. And uh, in, in that sort of transitional liminal space that you live in, you start realizing how many other things in your life are dependent on your sight. It, it, like it changes your language. It changes your sense of desire. It changes the way you just walk, uh, all sorts of stuff. But the, the other thing that I hadn't really anticipated was that in writing the book, it would become about something else. And I, I had this really wonderful genius editor in New York, named Lisa Kaufman at, at Public Affairs Books. And when I gave her the first draft of the memoir, it was maybe 120,000 words, something like that. Okay. And when we started to edit it, uh, she said, I want you to go away for a week and come up with a sentence. And this sentence is going to be the sentence that we use to edit the book. And she said, the sentence I want is, what is this book about? And you can't use the word blindness in it. And so in in being forced to do that, I realized, I mean, the sentence I came up with was roughly, you know, it's it's a coming of age memoir about a boy becoming a man and a disabled man at the same time. But he thinks those two things are a contradiction. And so in a way, it's a book about masculinity. As a, as examined through disability, like what happens to your sense of masculinity when you become blind, and you know that that made a lot of sense to me because so many good narratives. I mean, you know, this from movies, they tend not to be about what you think they're about. You know, Social Network is not about Facebook, and a memoir about going blind is not really about going blind. It's got to be about other things to make it rich enough to deserve to be told. So, I learned so much from her, and I still use that as a technique when I'm editing scripts or whatever is to ask that big question after the first draft. So interesting. And and don't you find also that in within that multifaceted gem that by the time there's an audience who's also looking into it, they're seeing reflected back, maybe even something that you didn't necessarily intend that you didn't even know is there. And that becomes what's meaningful to them. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) It's so so cool and exciting and and like unexpected as a writer. Yeah, it can also be a bit of a burden because when like when Cockeyed came out in 2006 and I went out on tour with it, I mean, it rolled out in in different countries at different times over a few years. So I traveled with the book for a long time and people would come up to me after events at lit festivals or, or whatever and often there would be parents who had teenagers who were losing their sight or something comparable and they'd come out and 
I would often hear this line and they'd say, you know, you seem so comfortable. You seem so at ease with who you are. You're so affable about it all. How do I get my kid there as they're going through this? (laughs) And and it's like, how do I get my kid there? You know, and it's like, well, unfortunately, if you really read the book, you'll see that, you know, it wasn't fun. It it was really a nihilistic spasm. Right. And really, the only advice I have is that you have to let your kid fail repeatedly until they stand up on their own. And that's not what they usually want to hear. But I mean, the, it's, inc- the it's sideways incredible thing, life advice at the same time. But the sideways thing is, I didn't anticipate the way our culture turns memoirs into uh, tools of counseling. Where, you know, I just wrote a memoir. I, I have no advice for you about your kid. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> So, and, and, you know, it, it's just like a strange way that we hang on to people's stories to try and make sense of our own. And it verges into that feeling of becoming a counselor to other people. Um, I remember I did a gig once with Adam Mansbach, who wrote uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep, the, the kid's book. Yeah. And he had told me, you know, after the book came out, he was suddenly on CNN panels about sleep advice for parents he's like i don't know any i don't know anything about sleep i just wrote a funny book about how my kid wouldn't go to sleep (laughs) goodness i mean this is maybe very american do you think no i've seen it in canada here too okay it is very much uh the way i mean the other thing that i learned and i've also taken into my screenwriting career and i think it, it was a really helpful lesson was you know, you're working in a genre, even if you're in a memoir, like in my case, you know, the genre of, of the disability memoir, of that kind of transformation you're talking about. And one of the surprising things that, that I discovered was I'd go out on tour, and in the book, the scene with the doctor is really malnourished. Like the moment I actually get diagnosed, I really skate over it quite quickly. Um, you know, there's a kind of temptation in these books to make that the really big sentimental pornographic moment the moment that your whole life blew up and i didn't want to indulge that moment so i kept the doctor moment pretty loose and skatey and you know kind of blew past it as as much as i could i think there's a scene where i'm staring at a goldfish on his desk and as he tells me i'm losing my sight i'm like i can still see this fish as long as as long as i can see this fish i'm fine Uh, and that's kind of the way i received the news and anyway, after that that book came out, I went on a tour. I cannot tell you how many people told me how moved they were by this doctor scene that they would then describe that isn't in my book. What? And and it's because the genre of, of the disability memoir is so front-loaded in the culture. We've seen it so many times that we will impose things on it that aren't actually there. Because we think we know how it's going to go all the time. It's always that triumph of the human spirit story. And so from that, I learned, like, when you're working in a genre that has a lot of exposure and a lot of literacy in the culture and a lot of familiarity, your first job is to disarm the audience's expectations to make them open to a story they're not expecting. Otherwise, they will put one there that you don't plan on. Even no matter how hard you try, if they think they're in something familiar, they will they will see it even if it's not there interesting it's Um, like it's like words written in water the way water bends light and the way that we think we're seeing it we're not really seeing it even though it's right there it's like this is what it is mm -hmm. but yet it's being bent and we're not even aware that it's happening inside our own eyes like that's where that's coming from yeah there's those old they're not i don't think they're medieval images but they're they're quite old images of what 
they originally thought sight worked light. And there would be these images of people with light coming out of their eyes as if we projected sight out into the world instead of light coming in through the eyes in these old paintings. And I still think that there's actually some truth to that, that there was this feeling that sight is something that comes out of you as much as it comes into you. It's the way you project yourself onto the world and impose an understanding on the world as much as you receive one. So, you know, we think of sight as a very one-way thing that it comes into you, but I don't think that's true. I think about light a lot, in, you know, in my work and in, as I'm aging, you know, I just had a birthday and I'm 46 and congrats. Well, thank you. It's always nice to make it through another year. Um, yeah, but we're the, the lucky like, ones. The different kinds of light in the world and how, in how it affects landscape even, or, you know, the way that we feel, whether it's sunlight or moonlight, you know, sunlight has all the harsh as, edges of of seeing and then moonlight comes in and just softens everything and turns it all to sort of one color and there's kind of a relief in the blurring of like okay I don't have to make everything harsh edges anymore I know when I was younger everything had a harsh edge and maybe that's partly age too of you know this stage of my life has given over to this stage of my life and this relationship has ended and this relationship has begun and there's all of these you know harsh edges and now as I've gotten to be where I am now there's this beautiful blurring and I've really kind of welcomed it because it's it's much more easy on my psyche yeah, I th- I, I've noticed this too as I'm getting older, that, that when I was younger, my ambition was was sort of textured with a kind of determination. It was a kind of, like you say, it's that harsh edgedness of the way I would see things that I wanted to do, stories I wanted to tell, things I wanted to write. There was a kind of, I, won't, I don't want to call it aggressive, but it, there was a, definitely a kind of determinism in it. Yeah. And that that edge was in part, you know, a young person trying to assert control on their life and get some purchase mm-hmm. in the world, right? And get some traction. And so you look for everything with these very hard edges. Uh, and you're right. I find as I get older, I don't I don't look at things that way as much anymore. I don't imagine them with such um sharpness you know i i don't know how to describe it. it's a little metaphorical but i get what you're saying yeah no I'm, I'm not even sure how to describe it either i mean we're sort of triangulating the whole creative process and how we evolve and how it changes you know we started off by talking about like how we would write our books differently you know <laughs> now yeah with where yeah. we are my mentor actually lives very near you um tom robbins the novelist the american novelist i met when oh, i was yeah. I was 18 and um, I was such a huge fan of his he book. He still live in Conner, right? He does still I mean, live in Conner. Does he still live in Conner? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, when I was about 16, we drove to Conner to look for him. Oh, you're, <laughs> well, he was yeah. there just outside. Yeah, we did We were just like three teenage boys. Through the, uh, the fields, yes. No, I've been up there to visit him. I I remember asking him, I was, I was on book tour with him. I don't even remember which book it was. might've been like half asleep in frog pajamas. And I was like, you know, do you go back and reread any of your books? And he was like, God, no, no, you know, just like (laughs) I would rewrite everything. And like, it, it was baffling to me, you know, young aspiring writer, hearing that, you know, the, the, the legend, my hero was like, you know, horrified by his early work, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. which I thought was so great, you know, at the time he, he was so playful and is so playful. He's a very playful guy. They're now trying to make his, um, children's book B is for beer into a musical, 
with uh with oh, Ben yeah. with Ben Lee. I got to hear some of the songs and his words oh, put to cool. music, and it is the coolest freaking thing. I hope they get to do it because it, it's really genius. It's quite wonderful. The beer fairy oh. and everything else. Yeah, that's so great. Well, I want to talk to you about your how how did you find screenwriting? How did that path come to you? Because it's a really strong piece of your identity now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it is, I don't know how to describe other than I've said to people over the years, like, cockeyed as a book was in some ways an accident, because I actually set out to write a book of essays that became a memoir. Mm-hmm. And it was it was an accidental memoir. Uh, in that respect, because in order, like my old mentor up here, a guy named Brian Fawcett, who was in Toronto, he had said to me, I want you to write, you know, some short pieces for this website he was running at the time, this is very, you know, 1990s. Um, but he's like, I, I want to read some short pieces about what it's like to be a blind guy. Like, but I don't want to hear about your sad story about how it makes you so sad. What I want to hear about is like, what is it like to be in Ikea when you're a blind person? Um, and it was sort of fun to do all that. And then I realized, you know, in writing these essays, none of it made sense unless I told you about the pathology of my disease. Cause my site was changing every year. And so it had to have this sort of memoir laid over it to make sense of how my site was different in each of these little essays. And by the end of it, it had become like this accidental memoir that my editor had then pulled to the foreground. And in a, in a similar way, screenwriting, I became an accidental screenwriter because uh, when Cockeyed came out, my literary agent at the time, and by lit agent, I don't mean like a, a Hollywood screenwriting agent. I just mean like a book agent. Yes. Um, my lit I'm agent. I'm always clarifying that for, for everyone as yeah. well. No, they're all called <laughs> literary agents. They are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. <laughs> I've taken to but, just calling uh, them book agents because no one has any idea. So that's okay. Yeah, exactly. So my book agent, you know, she had a film rights agent that, that was one of her sub agents. He had taken it around and nobody was interested in picking up Cockeye because it just looked like a book of sort of David Sedaris essays about being blind. And I just I said to her, can I can I talk to him? Because I think there still is a movie in this book. And she said, okay. And you know, and so I phoned him and and told him that there was a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that might have helped if it's a book. And he's like, well, maybe it would help me if you had a treatment that could show that. And I said, yes. what's a treatment? And he he sent me three treatments. Um, and I so I sort of imitated those. And nobody bought cockeyed off that. And then he said, you know, you should just take a stab at the screenplay. And I said, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And so he told me about Final Draft, and he sent me three scripts to look at. And I just tried to imitate their format and took a crack at it. And that's what got me into the Sundance Lab, was that draft. Well, you say and that's what got me into, but how really did it take you to the Sundance Lab? I mean, did someone, did you submit it? Did someone else submit it on your behalf? What happened? My film rights agent actually took it on, and he found a producer... Um, uh, a woman named Susan Cartzonis who had produced uh, What Women Want, uh, among other things. And she was interested. And so she had relationships with the Sundance Lab and she had submitted it to, to help get me in to sort of learn my craft because it was just my first draft of a first script. Wow. And, the, you know, and then it got me in and I went down to the lab 
And again, it's like the, the accidental screenwriter. I did it. I did it in part just because I wanted to see if I could do it because I just thought it would be so badass to be a blind person who's writing movies he'll never see. <laughs> you know, that, that it just felt like Hollywood's that fucked up now if they're hiring blind people to describe pictures to them. Uh, so, and I like the idea, like for me, it's always been the case that the best stuff, the best experiences, the best work, it's always from the things that don't invite you. Like I always want to go where I'm not invited. So, uh, that felt like a, a good sort of professional challenge. And then when I got into the lab, you know, I, I went down to Salt Lake city and went up to the Sundance resort, which is where it is. There's all these cabins and stuff. And yes, I've been sat there. Down with, yeah, it was it was amazing. I said that was ten of the screenwriters, and I will admit, I had no idea what I had just pulled off. Like, I found out, of course, how important the Sundance Lab is and its you know history and its significance and the people who had been through it and the films that had come out of those labs. You know, Tarantino and P.T. Anderson and uh, you know Boys Don't Cry, like all these films that came out of there, and then. I'm sitting there going, how the hell did I, what am I doing here? You know, there's like young filmmakers who are crying. They're like, thank you for taking me in. And I'm just the jerk who wandered in from Canada with a white cane going, is this where I'm supposed to be? Um, (laughs) I had no idea what I'd pulled out of the rabbit, like the rabbit I'd pulled out of the hat. So, um, and yeah, you're right. My life did change then because I did at the lab, I did work on Cockeye, but I learned very quickly from working with the screenwriters that, Screenwriting is a really fun medium for a blind person because you're working in a sightless medium. You know, you're working on a, a script that describes a picture nobody else can see. Yes. And I've, I've been on the other side of that table so many times where I'm in a movie theater and my wife or my daughter are telling me what's going on and they're very good at it. But when somebody's not good at it, it completely ruins the experience of the film. And so many screenplays read like that person sitting beside you who can't quite narrate it in the right way to make you feel what's on the screen. Um, So coming from that sort of empathetic spot of what it's like being told a movie, um, I felt like that was my first footing into screenwriting was as a blind person saying, okay, I can make a document that describes a picture you can't see. And the irony of a blind person who's going into a medium that's like, we see. (laughs) Uh Yeah. How much do you rely on your your memory then of being cited to describe these scenes? Are you you being carried into somewhere in your imagination that's just entirely other? It's a bit of both. I mean, like anybody else. I mean, the big difference is I was not born blind. So, you know, I started losing my sight in my late teens. So I do have that kind of repository of images in my mind from the world of the sighted. Uh, You know, I've seen social cues, I've seen facial expressions, uh, you know, I've seen all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the world is a little frozen in amber, you know, with in terms of cultural references that are visual. But, you know, you you can pick up on a lot of stuff pretty easy. I, I still teach and I actually do this game with my students every semester when I teach at the university where um, I'll start the class with a thing where I say to them, uh, their weekly challenge is to tell me something they think I don't know. You know, so, and it's always a visual thing. Tell me something you think I don't know is out there. And, you know, I remember a number of years ago, one student said, did you know there's a fashion trend of wearing animal onesies? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And she she explained and, and I had no idea. Like, and I had no reason to know that. And so suddenly I'm like, really? There are people walking around in like 
cheetah onesies and unicorn onesies standing at bus stops and they're like oh yeah and, and I'm like, <laughs> do you think they were pulling your leg did you were, were i did completely did? i'm like that, that sounds insane i felt the same <laughs> way like, when my no wife way. told me beards were back everybody's wearing beards I'm like what are you talking about beards are back they're so ugly she's like no everybody where all the guys are wearing beards now that's so weird why would that ever come back oh that's so <laughs> yeah the trends they that that are the that people take for granted. That's an interesting exercise. Tell me what you're teaching and at what university. Um, I teach at the university of here in Vancouver. Um, I mean, I don't live in Vancouver anymore, but it's in Vancouver called Capilano University. It's been around since the 60s. Uh, I'm in the English department there, and I've been teaching creative writing and literature and rhetoric for, they hired me when I was like 25. So I've been there for a long time, but I only teach part-time. Uh, I've never taught full-time. And in part, I, I don't really need to with the writing, but I like a little bit of teaching throughout the year because, A, it, it keeps me in touch with what the 18-year-olds are interested in these days. Um, I get to hear the language that they're using more intimately. Um, I get to hear what they're thinking about. I get to hear what they're liking on Netflix or what they're listening to on TikTok. Uh, I find it's just a good way to kind of keep a, a finger on the pulse um have sort of a group I, of people it's so great so great i love so too I, founding the entertainment business school and a lot of the people who find me the students who find me are often straight out of film school or still in uh school and about to graduate and it's illuminating to be connected to the youth when i was a teenager i was actually really good friends with timothy leary and tim was in mm -hmm. his like probably late seventies and in a wheelchair. And he loved having the teenagers over to like play basketball in the front, in the front driveway and everything. And it was just like this whole mix of people of all ages. And I know, I know now looking back that that came from his life as a professor that he was never like willing to give up because you just stay connected to the world in a way like that if you don't have that, you almost start to get frozen in time and keep listening to right. the same music. You don't have the, you know, what's happening now in a very alive way. It's meaningful. It is. I, I mean, the other thing is I, I tend to teach only first and second year courses and I don't want to teach the upper level courses. And, and particularly because I like to just go back and teach the fundamentals over and over because after a while working, you think you know what you're supposed to be doing. And it's nice to go in and check in with them, open-minded, as if it's the first time, with the fundamentals about structure and grammar and things that, you know, after a while you start just taking for granted. And it's good to sometimes just check in and see if they hold true, because they can change too, you know, over time. Um, some of my sort of narrative techniques and my sort of interest in narrative has evolved because... You know, my, my daughter, for example, who's almost 15, she's not particularly in love with movies. She doesn't watch many of them and neither do her friends. And part of it is because they are so literate in the formulas, particularly of the archetypal journey, that they find it really boring. They, they, can see where, they can see where the third act is by the end of the, you know, the first act. And so there isn't a, a compulsion to sit there. Um, they're just too aware of the structures that we've, become too comfortable with um, and that's what they love about sort of the alternative formats of tiktok and other things i find is they like the surprise of not knowing where something's going to go even in a short space um, so it, it, that's that's i think the other helpful thing is just checking in with your fundamentals and constantly questioning 
Oh, that's so, that's so cool. Um, well, let's talk about your advice to screenwriters. I know a lot of my audience is above the line creatives, some of whom are, you know, hoping to break in or trying to break in and others of whom are even like mid-career writers who haven't seen the kind of success they hope to. What kind of advice do you have? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have to do it, go do something else. That's the one I always. <laughs> go build a chicken coop in the backyard. If there's anything else you'd rather do, go do it. Uh, it's it's a, a road filled with potholes of heartache. Um, uh, whether it's my, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, my advice would always change. It really depends on the person often, but uh, and I don't like to claim the mantle of arrogance to say, I can tell you what you should do. I can tell you what I've been sort of thinking about more and more now, which is, I, I think there's such a fetishization of form and structure and genre, all these sort of, uh, you know, craft elements, which, you know, you have to have, uh, just as we were talking about a minute ago, like, long form television now has become so sophisticated in its narrative techniques. Um, and it's, it's gone back to sort of the origins of the Dickens novels as the origins of the cliffhanger. So, you know, a 12 episode Netflix TV series is really drawing on that Dickensian tradition where he would put like a, a chapter in a newspaper every week and leave a cliffhanger at the yes. end so buy the paper next week to read the next one. I mean, that's The Sopranos. The Sopranos is a Dickens novel in some ways. And um, the one thing that I, that I keep thinking about is we don't often talk about the fact that you actually have to have something to say that hasn't been said, that there has to be some sort of need for this story to be told. And, you know, many young writers, when you say, who's this story for? or Why does this need to be told? There's always this little pause that they haven't necessarily thought about that. It's just they had this idea and it felt like something that would have enough legs to fit a movie or fit a TV show. But there isn't that sense of like, what do you need to say and why? Like, why does this need to be said right? And not just right now, but like, what is it you want to say in the, in the world? Um, what's your contribution to the conversation? And for you to do that, you have to have a lot of input as much as you have output. Absolutely. We talk about screenwriting so much as like generating pages and generating pitches and ideas, but that has to come from somewhere and you need a lot of input to create that output. And I don't just mean consuming movies and TV shows. You have to live a lot too. You got to live um, and you need so, a viewpoint on the world. Completely. And a point of view is not something to be understated and what, you know, and it's a mysterious thing to discover. I, I think in some ways it's what we used to mean by saying, you know, finding your voice as a writer, I think it's actually closer to what we mean as finding your point of view, because your voice is always going to change. Your, your point of view will too, but when we say like, what's your take on this material? What's your take on this theme? We're asking for a point of view that is uniquely your own, because that's ultimately what's going to sell something, is that point of view. Um, so, you know, for my purposes, I'm always saying to students, live anecdotally rich lives. You know, you should you should be trying to live a life that is Filling it with stories of things that you've done, things you've seen, people you've met, being outside your comfort zone, trying things you've never done before uh, in order to fill the gas tank. Because otherwise, the output becomes more and more difficult or repetitive because you keep generating the same thing over and over again, uh, just with different characters. So interesting. You know, I, I heard your episode on Noah Epsilon's podcast, Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss. 
And you guys got to talk for a bit about your relationship with, you know, the actual page and your screenwriting software. And um, for anyone who hasn't heard that episode, who's listening to this one, I want to talk to you about that because it's so interesting. You being so reliant on the sound of what you've written. Would you talk about that? So I use um, a voice program that's called JAWS. I don't actually know why it's called JAWS, to be honest. Um, but it's been around for uh, as long as I've been a blindo. So, you know, I think I got my first copy of the computer program in the early 2000s, like maybe 2000 even, something like that. And it sounds like the Stephen Hawking voice. So it's that very sort of rudimentary computer voice. It's not a dictation voice. I don't dictate my writing. I, I touch type it, which is the best thing I ever did was take touch typing. In I was going to add, it was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> I would have no career if I had not learned. Oh, if you, yeah, if you were touching and pecking, this would not go well. Oh, and I did it simply <laughs> so I wouldn't have to go into shop class in ninth grade and get my ass kicked for wearing pointed blue bog shoes. Um, so uh, I use this computer voice and um, the, I don't know how to describe it. It is that Stephen Hawking voice. It's very slow. It takes me about um, maybe three times as long to read a sentence as you do. Uh, but if you listen to it, it's incredibly fast for you. You probably wouldn't be able to understand what it's saying. Uh, but uh, it's still quite a slow way to, to proceed. And in my case, I write by ear more than eye. I. I think a lot about how things sound. The rhythm on the page is really important to me. Like, you know, if you have a, a bus coming at you that's going to run over a character, you don't want to describe that in a short, punchy sentence unless it's a big, sudden surprise. You want to. A, a kind of rambling, escalating tension otherwise, because that's the way a bus barreling up, down on somebody would feel. So I'm really into like the musicality of syntax and how it extends the emotion of the moment. Like what is the right syntax for this moment? Not just what are the right words. Um, and so I think about that a lot. And, and part of this came out of the fact that, uh, you know, when I was a, a student in university, um, when I was losing my sight, it, the way it, it progresses is the edges of your of my periphery were closing in until I had really tight tunnel vision in one eye. Um, so think of like looking through a rolled up newspaper or through a paper towel tube, but even tighter than that. So when I would look at a book when I was in third year university, the the word I would see on the page is the, and I would see nothing else around it on that entire paperback page. But if my eye goes to the right slightly the word the becomes hen. And then I realize I'm actually looking at the word then because I couldn't even fit the whole thing inside my little tube. Oh my gosh, wow. Um, and so you can imagine if you're reading like that, you don't say, I want to study 900 page Victorian novels. <laughs> <laughs> what you do is you say, I'm going to study 1960s avant-garde American minimalist poets who wrote like eight lines on a page <laughs> and I could just memorize those and then write essays about them without having to read anything. Um, so I skated through by not reading very much by just concentrating on what was really small and I could hold in my head and screenwriting has been very much supported by that sort of practice in myself where I can hold the whole scene in my head. I can hold all the language of the scene in my head at once. I don't have to reread it over and over necessarily because I can conjure it really easily. 
Um, and then I work with it mostly by sound first, like what it sounds like, what, uh, you know, for me, I need a voice for a character before I need an image for them. I need to know how they talk because usually I can extrapolate from that other things and, and trying to find a way that on a page, everybody sounds like a unique person without sounding like cartoony uh, to each other. Right. Cause once I've got that, then I can start extrapolating the other things underneath it. it it's um it's very much the process of writing where the, at the center of my writing is this computer voice and it's the thing everything gets built on. So I have to work with sound first and I'm always trying to wrestle this thing into sounding human because it, it sounds like a computer. And so, you know, giving dialogue a very polished vernacular and a very, um, I try to be really realistic about how people speak it helps pull that computer voice back into the human realm a little more. And then I know I'm, I'm writing well. Closer, if the computer voice right? sounds, yeah. If the computer voice sounds like a computer talking, then the dialogue is crap. I've huh. got to go back and, and work on it again. Um, what a, what a, it, it's got, it's got weird poetry as well, because you're speaking about the musicality of syntax, which is, which is poetry, which is the root of the beauty of language is shared story by the campfire, you know, as someone is, has tell me a story and then we, we get told the story and yet then it's stripped away by the computer voice and you've got to find a way to put the humanity back in. At least that's what I hear you saying there. Oh, Absolutely. I, and also just, you know, there's so many scripts where people find a relationship between the written world, word and the camera and the sound of the thing where like the, the script for, um, oh God, it's just completely fallen out of my head. What is the cartoon robot movie about the robot left on the planet by himself? Wally. Um, Wally. Wally is an amazing script because every line is a camera shot. It works like a whole bunch of haiku. Um, it's just so well told that way that every action line is a distinct shot. You can feel how the whole thing builds. There's no mystery about it at all. Um, and then I look at other scripts for other things. Like I think it's Unforgiven has this great style and its action sequences as a Western where um, I, I think he'll end like he'll be in a, a kind of action sequence run, like say a shootout at a bar. And every action line as he's building the images will end with uh, an and or an ellipses or a dash. And there's a sense of continuous flow from one image to the next, which helps you feel like you're in this action sequence. Just this little touch at the end of each line connecting it to the next one. So it is in a sense of a hard period. Yes. Um, and those are very small things, but they aggregate to a very different effect when you're reading something. Oh, I completely, um, so, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, I feel like I just had this question in my mind that I wanted to ask you about. Oh, yes. Okay. So the how did your writing change when you went from just your writing to now your writing is being produced and you're getting the opportunity to hear your words being spoken by actors? Uh, I, that's a hard one because... In in terms of that, my produced writing is all on this show in the dark. A lot of it is done by everybody. Like, I, you know, you can point to a line where it's like, I did that. <laughs> but there is a sense like you didn't write that thing nose to tail because there's a showrunner and there's the room. and it, So you do catch those moments. But we have that fortune, too, of being four seasons in where it's like, I know these characters. I know these actors. And there's a difference where you're writing at the beginning 
And then you hear those words spoken by a character and you're like, oh, that, that feels weird. And you sort of course correct. Um, but then as you get deeper into a show, it goes the other way where you're actually writing to those characters because they're so well established and their voices are so clear. Um, it's, it's not like you're trying to figure them out through the writing anymore. Now you're just trying to feed them from the, the way you understand them. Uh, and the way the audience knows them too. And that's a different skill set. Writing to an established character is so different than writing to invent one. Um, and in our case, that's a very much a collective activity because it's a hive wisdom about what characters sound like and, and how they behave. But, you know, it has, has, does it change my writing? Not really. I mean, I find in some respects, it, it's easier as I get older because I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm just so much less precious about writing than I used to be. Oh, you know, that it's, it's a verb. It's a thing you do. It's not a noun. It's not a thing you have. And, you know, the writing gets rewritten and the writing becomes more writing and you get less precious about that. And you try different things and you're more willing, I find, to try things too, because you're less attached to this is the script that's going to make my career or this is the one that will get me an agent. Right. Um, you become more into the process for its own sake, I find. No question. I, I've experienced that as well. Um we're just moving toward what makes me feel alive in any given moment with my writing is just always the answer. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I have some things I've had to abandon, most things I finish, but then I'm leaning always toward, well, you know, why does this make me feel alive? And you're, um, you know, speaking to what do you really have to say? What is your POV? And uh, I remember Joni Mitchell saying like, no one has anything to say until they turn 40 and how irritated <laughs> I was, <laughs> like how irritated I was by that when I was in my twenties, I was like, I have something to say, I'll figure out something I have to say, but really I didn't, I had the desire to say something, but I really didn't have anything to say. And so it was an exercise in just sharpening the blade without having anything to cut for a long time. And, you know, now being in my forties and being a feminist, you know, an uh, accidental feminist, you know, where I never knew anything about feminism in my teens and then realizing, Oh wait, I have less opportunity. Why, why do I have less opportunity? <laughs> What's going on? And then going backwards in time to realize, Oh, well, this is not something I need to take personally. This is totally a collective issue. Um, and then looking back on the, the movies that really informed me, that changed my life really as a kid, one of the biggest ones for me was The Black Stallion. And, uh, really? Oh, the Francis Ford Coppola. Absolutely. Yeah. That movie for me, as I look back on it now, as it was for me when I was a kid, it was almost like this erotic intelligence of a relationship with nature that was just so alive. And there's this incredible 20 minute stretch of film where there is no dialogue, where the boy uh, and the horse have washed up on the island and they have the boy decides to try to win over the horse, the wild stallions trust. And, you know, there's the, the snake moment and trying to, they're trying to scramble for water and survival. And he starts to collect the seaweed for the horse. And then finally he can, you know, ride the horse. And there's those scenes where they have sunk the camera underwater and the, you see the boy for the first time mount the horse and the horse's, you know, legs plunging through the water. And, you know, this relationship, this impossible relationship and, um, and as a girl, it never occurred to me 
to think anything other than than that this was first of all possible <laughs> and, and second of all like you know in any way that I was not part of that scene even though it was a boy and then as now you know looking back on all the movies that really informed me as a kid except for Anne of Green Gables they were all boys and you know I'm a very adventurous soul I've, you know, traveled around the world alone and solo and explored and adventured and led camping trips into the Rocky Mountains and summited 14,000 foot mountains and things like this. And, you know, only turning 40, I think, was around the time where I went, there's nothing really there still in the landscape about these adventurous girls. It's still mostly adventurous boys. And then I went, yeah, Oh, this yeah. is it. This is it for me. This is what I have to say. If all, if all, if all I say for the next, you know, 20 years of my career is these wonderful stories about adventurous girls and women, these are the stories I want to tell. Uh, and it was so exciting for me to kind of figure that out, but it took that long, you know, in an industry that's very ageist. So it's interesting. It's like, okay, hmm, all right, well, now I know what I have to say. And I know I can spend the rest of my life saying it in an industry that's like, but wait, you're not 25. <laughs> we don't know if we want yeah. you. <laughs> Hopefully that's changing. Hopefully that's changed. I, I don't know about the Joni Mitchell line. I don't think that's true. And I, I feel like an idiot even trying to pick an argument with Joni Mitchell. But <laughs> I don't know about the 40 thing. I think it's there is something about uh, the intent of the work changes, I find, as you get older. You know, I, I had stuff to say when I was less than 40, for sure. I mean, I wrote Cockeyed when I was in my 30s. Um, but that's because that specifically happened to me then. Um, and I think I had an experience that was worth writing about and a point of view to write about it from, and part of it was the naivety of that age. Um, that was part of what made it work. I think if I'd written it now, it'd be a very different story and probably would be the wrong approach to it. Like looking back at it would be wrong. I mean, I'm friends with Augustine Burroughs who wrote Running With Scissors. And one of the reasons that his memoir, I think, didn't really fire as a film is that the book is so dependent on his hindsight, like the tone of his uh, narrative voice looking back. And he's telling you these horrifying, terrible, traumatic things that happened to him when he was a kid, but he's telling them to you in this super uncomfortable, funny way. But you get permission to laugh because he's safe on the other side of it, telling it to you as yeah, an adult. And, but if you film that and it strips it of that, that safety and that that varnish and it's just you watching a kid go through what he went through it just doesn't work the tone is um, so different then isn't it it's so different oh, and you know but whereas like you know for me one of those fundamental films when i was a kid was stand by me and part oh, of what absolutely. makes stand and what makes that work is just that richard dreyfus narrative over it you know that it's not you just watching these boys. It's you watching the man tell you the story of himself as a boy and trying to come to a relationship with that kid he was. Um, the narrative hindsight is the center of the thing. Did so, you read the Stephen King uh, story? No, because I loved the film so much. I didn't want another experience of it, to be honest. It, it was one of those weird ones where I knew the film before the story. And, and it's one of those that's it. like, you know, perfectly lifted from the page. The, it's from the book Four Seasons. And, you know, several mm -hmm. others came out of that as well. You know, Shawshank came out of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's one of his books that isn't scary. 
Uh, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. it, it, and, and it's very poignant and that coming of age for the boys also very poignant. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like, stand by me. It was one of those, you know, young river Phoenix and their, their journey together, the boys and starting off at the, the candy shop all the way through walking the railroad ties. I remember that was really inspiring to me as well. It made me feel something. And I think that's why we go, you know, why we love movies, why we love TV. It makes us feel something, whether it's pain or it's, you know, joy or whatever else, you know, you, you sit down and you know, you're going to go on this journey to feel something. And it's interesting that you're then reliant on the narration of your family for that experience. I am now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are, absolutely. you are now. Yeah. Yeah. Back then a little less. So, I mean, I, you know, I can see enough when I was a teenager to watch that, but now, now for sure, I would need that sort of narration. But you know, the funny thing is as a blind person watching TV or film, you don't actually need a lot of help to be honest because Mm. it's perfectly curated reality. Like everything in that frame also in terms of sound is uh, relevant. Like there's no sound in that frame that is a distraction from the story. It's all related to what you're supposed to be seeing. So if somebody puts down a cup, you hear it. No, I haven't seen it yet. I'm curious your your what your reaction will be to that one. What do you see happening in the industry? You know, we've been through the pandemic. Now we're uh, we're a bit more woke than we were, and there's more opportunity for differently abled people to tell their stories. What are you seeing? Boy, I, I mean, it's been a whirlwind. I did an episode of Script Notes with John August where we talked right at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of this question, because I was wrestling with how to pitch at that point, because I'm like, I have no idea what to pitch right now. I don't know if people are buying anything right now. I don't know where the center of gravity of everything is shifting to. Um, now that we're sort of almost two years into it, like it does look like some things are coming back. I don't think features are ever going to come back to what they were before. It's that's mm-hmm. a new thing now because it is it is about streamers. I think movie theaters are becoming amusement parks in terms of they are event rides. Um, you know, you're not going to see a stand by me in a movie theater. I think anymore. Yeah, no, there's uh, no theatrical necessity it. to that. No, there really isn't. But you know, what's the upside of that is you know Netflix and Amazon and others are definitely making a space for those movies that were getting squeezed out by the theatrical uh, monopoly. Of right. Like the mid-budget films. Yeah. Like they've got a second life now because of that, as we've seen. And, and that's a good thing, but there's just so much content now. But, <laughs> you know, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is there's almost too much and it's harder to pitch because everything has to have such a, have such an elevated sense of noise and concept to make it cut through. Uh, and to find an audience that um, it can create its own sort of uh, inertia of the t- types of stories that are getting told. My, I, I, of all the things that are going on, and I'll just speak from my experience as a disabled guy, the one thing I'm sort of watching right now is you are right that there is a rise in sort of the the impulse to be more inclusive in our storytelling and in the way we tell stories. So also hiring people uh, people of color, more women, more people with disabilities, making sure that our, our writers' rooms represent a, a broader sense of the culture. And that's good for the storytelling in those rooms. I find the hardest thing right now is it has made it so like almost the only thing coming across my desk right now are blind stories. Mm-hmm. That there's sort of like, this is your IP now. 
and it's what you do and it's what we come to you for. And that's a little suffocating, I'm finding, where it's like, oh, so any show where there's a disabled character, they're going to find try and find the disabled writer who can help own that story for the show. And that sort of pigeonholes you in a way that can be quite frustrating, I find, right now. Because there's other, there's other things I'd like to write. It is. Yeah, it's a very I mean, You know, it's part, it's part of the transformation that's going on. But I think it's also like, I'm looking forward to the day when we look at writers' rooms, not as people's identities who own stories, but as we need this broad diversity of identities to tell a broad, diverse version of different stories. Right. So it's not just blind people telling blind stories in my case, but to allow for another point of view on a show where that just we don't know what that'll give that show. Right. Like, what would it mean to have a couple of disabled writers on a show where there are no disabled characters? Like, maybe we'll find some for you, but maybe it's going to help you tell your story in a different way and make you think about things you haven't thought about before. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for that because right now I find we're, we're sort of. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing just, you know, in my 10 years in the industry, the last two years, the only thing coming to my desk is blind stories right now. And I hadn't seen that before, by any means. So I mean, we are making stuff we weren't making before. And we're dealing with subjects we necessarily were. They weren't as sexy before to buyers and networks and whatnot. But um, it can be a little stifling as a writer, I find right now that way. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, are you still writing stuff on spec so you get your own decision making about what stories you want to tell and how? Yeah, it's still it's still I'm doing a one for me, one for them. So you know, I'm still totally open and 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 helping out on on shows or projects where there's a disability element if it interests me. But it's got to say something I haven't seen said before, which is the other thing. And it can't just be like we're going to tell a disabled story that we all know and we've been told before, and we just need a disabled writer to help us with that. It's going to do something new. Um, but then on the other side, I'm always developing and pitching my own stuff. And right now I've sort of made it a constraint that, that, my, that my own projects just don't have any of that stuff in it. I'm, I'm working on other things that I'm thinking about, such as surfing and whatnot, right? Like there's other things I want to write about. Oh, we need to talk about surfing. <laughs> well, you're writing, as as you're writing about it. surfing? Wait, wait, wait. My ears just perked up. <laughs> I'm writing about, uh, well, yes, I'm supposed to be writing about surfing. I'm still, I'm still wrestling with what I want to do with it. But, um, I mean, there's a group yeah, when, of us, you know, screenwriter surfers, and we need to have like a paddle out or a powwow or just something to get together and like, <laughs> share <laughs> our surfing writing stories. I keep a surf blog <laughs> and writing about surfing is like, you know, I don't know. It's the closest thing I know to like, it's like writing about sex or something or talking about it. You get to actually the it's closest experience of it. It's very difficult. I mean, I keep saying like William Finnegan's Barbarian Days. Oh, yes. There's, there's like there's like maybe one or two other books that are kind of like Garrett McNamara's memoir was really great. How oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, um, the 100 foot wave also was just yeah. what a storytelling, you know, it was spectacle. It was incredible. But then there's this big drop off where the books after that, like I find there's two or three up there. And Barbarian Days is just uncontested. That's the best surfing book. Um, Have you read but after, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, on, I'm, I'm adapting that memoir right now. Oh, are you really? 
Yeah, I am with Liz Clark. I'm so excited. That's a, one of my, that my, my area right now is adaptations. And that one is like, I'm, I've never been so excited in my life to write anything. <laughs> it's really, as a really film cool. Or as a TV show? We're adapting it for series, for a limited series. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so yeah, it is. She's so inspiring. And the, the journey of, you know, sailing and surfing together. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw Rockaway was being adapted too. Yes. Um, I've heard that. Uh, yeah, there's sort of this interest right now. Uh, don't know why. <laughs> but there is this interest right now in surfing as a subject. And But in terms of those books, like I find there's just such a big drop-off after you've named those few that are just really great ones. The next ones just kind of go, eh. <laughs> You know, it's not, it's a very difficult thing to write about. And there are a lot of great surfers who have tried to write about it, but their writing isn't up to the experience of what they do. And um, I don't know what it is right now about surfing. Like in my case, I've been thinking about it because the pandemic sort of drove me out here. Like I gave up on cities after the pandemic. Yeah, um, I came out. I came out here to this village to hide out as a blind person because we we realized very quickly. Like I'd walk outside the house in Vancouver where we used to live, um, and I'd bump into two people who were looking on their phones, and I was like, "Oh shit, am I going to get COVID now?" Oh um, you know, I'm just constantly That's bumping into people and I didn't want to get on buses. And yes. so we came out here for, you know, the year because we, we were sort of building a house here as a vacation place and we just hid out here and then we decided just to stay. And, and I've kind of turned my back on the city because it's, it's just become a, a different place for me now. And, you know, I was always surfing out here in the summers, but I really leaned into it and, Tell me about that, because um, I was leaning into surfing during the pandemic, too. Tell me about your break and your relationship with surfing and the ocean. I honestly don't know what happened. Something happened where... You're the accidental surfer, here. too? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I found it years ago through... I'd done an article for Outside Magazine back in 2010, and that was the first time I surfed. And I did it out here near Tofino. And I came out with a friend of mine who... Um, he was sort of... Uh, he was a pro skateboarder in the 80s who was losing his hearing and he went to university and stopped but he'd always kept surfing wait is this the photo i saw recently on twitter of you and your pal no that was taken by that guy oh okay okay. the the person who took that picture is the is the guy i'm talking about but his name's colin ruloff and he was a really well-known skateboarder here in canada and was sort of in the pipeline of the tony hawks world and you know does vertical skateboarding and all that stuff but he has like i don't know maybe five percent of his hearing left in one ear and i met him in university in uh, the 90s because we were in philosophy classes together and he'd gone back to get a degree because he needed something to do when he gave up on skateboarding and he was still surfing on the side but back then it's pre-internet so he would come into class with these like printouts these like reams of paper and because he'd go into the library at the university in the morning and get the meteorological reports out of Alaska so he could track swell. And he knew if there was a storm that he would have six hours to get from Vancouver to Tofino out here on the island before the swell would hit. So he'd come in. He's like, dude, can you take notes today? I got to get on a ferry. <laughs> and he'd go like camp on the beach for a week and surf. So he'd always said to me, you got to try it. You got to try it. And I just thought as a blind guy, there's just no way. So I did it with him for this article for Outside Magazine, you know, 11 years ago. So we were far, far out of our university days. And it was what you would imagine. It was the deaf guy trying to teach the blind guy how to surf. 
And so it was like a Three's Company episode of me shouting, <laughs> what do I do now? And him saying, what? And me going, where are you? And him saying, what? <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you want when you're, when you're bobbing in the swell, is that <laughs> sense of terror. Um, but I got very addicted to it right away. And, um, you know, we come out here for like a week in the summer and surf, and then it was two weeks, and then it was three weeks, and then we were trying to figure out ways to come out in the spring as well, and on and on it went. And, and when we came out here for the pandemic, I started surfing, you know, three, four times a week, and I got a coach, and I started dedicating myself to the idea of becoming a competitive um, uh, disabled surfer. Uh, at the age of 49 and I pitched it to my old editor at Esquire and so that was sort of where it landed as I said I'm just I don't know what it's going to be I don't know when I'm going to deliver it but I'm going to start doing this and, and COVID just made it much more difficult for a while because I couldn't work with my coach because as you can imagine like I don't remember what people look like surfing so she actually has to sculpt me on the beach like she will when she's trying to teach me certain things she can't describe it and do it and I, I imitate it I can't watch other surfers do things so she literally manipulates me on the beach like a sculpture and pushes my body around so I can develop the muscle feeling of what she's describing and when you have COVID at play we just couldn't do that pre-vaccine you know, mm. so it got scuttled for a while. But I, I find, you know, there was just something about paddling out when you can't see. You're literally paddling out into the void. And um, something about the respite from the pandemic and catastrophe, you know, raising a kid in the middle of all that. There was something about finding a space where nothing else matters. Like when I'm out in the water, you don't think about anything else because it's dangerous to think about anything else. And it's also not what you're there for. And it's it's such completely a, sensory consuming. So there's no other moment aside from the moment that you're in. And it's a completely other world than I call it landmind. You know, I get locked in my landmind and then getting out into the into the water. And the second my feet touch the water, mm -hmm. there's just this, it's all replaced by the relationship to the sea and, and the, the movement of it and, and what's happening. So we, I need yes, like sir. a little technical description for a moment, like a wave is coming. Are you turtling mm -hmm. knowing that you can hear the wave that's coming? Is someone next to you saying, Brian turtle? Like, <laughs> So I have, I have two modes of surfing. I have surfing when I'm solo and I have surfing with somebody. Wait, you surf and solo? I'll surf solo on the inside for reforms. Okay, okay. Um, so there are certain spots and certain conditions that I, I'll just surf on my own because green waves will start to peel off to my left or my right, you know, maybe 20 meters away. And it gives me just enough acoustic cue to know when to start paddling and which way it's coming. So there, if I'm lucky, there's certain days and certain conditions where I can just surf on my own like that. Uh, and I, I like that for the challenge of just, can I acoustically dial a spot? Can I figure it out just by ear and by feel? Um, and in that case, I need to be, I don't go over shoulder deep because I need to be able to feel the bottom. So I, I'll know yes. if I'm in a rip or not. Right. Um, but when I'm on my, when I'm with somebody, like I have a coach named Bridget and I have another one named Joe and either of them, when they take me out, we'll paddle out and I can hear the white wall coming at me to turtle it. And once you get past the whitewash, you know, you can paddle over them anyway without turtling. So I'm fine. And then I get out back and then I aim to the beach and we use a clock as our system. So 
you know, the beach directly ahead is 12 o'clock. And what Bridget will do is she'll just say, after this bump, the next one is yours. It's a left. And then she'll say, dig. And then I start when she gives me enough cue because the green waves are silent. Yeah. Uh, and then I start paddling. And then she'll say, you're at 11 o'clock. You want to be at 10, you know. Um, to give you the angle know, to drop in. Yeah, we just use a clock. So it's like, you're at 12 o'clock. You need to be at 10. It's a left. Go. That's what I get from them. So it's like, I know I'm, I'm facing straight ahead. I need to be kind of more to the left, a couple strokes to the left and start digging. Then I feel it pick up the tail and then I go. You know, you look down the line and you anticipate sections and sort of try to plan an attack on a wave. I'm just surfing reactive. I just, whatever I feel is what I react to. Yeah. So I'm not going to be doing snaps off the lip and stuff, but... <laughs> But I'm going to be a blind guy who's like trying to get through a section of whitewash and I can float over it. Like so exhilarating though. I mean, I know in your book, you talked about your relationship to running and like that was never going to happen again. You were never going to run again. And now you have, mm -hmm. you know, a speed sport that you can, you can do. Is it just so exhilarating for you? Uh, yeah, it's a weird, you know, I kind of get that idea that people who don't surf, I'm sure get really sick of listening to surfers talk about this, <laughs> but I get the idea that it is a very spiritual practice. But I never had anything that I would call anything like that before, because I'm not that kind of person. Um, but it is such an all-consuming physical activity. It's mental. It's reading landscape. I have to listen so carefully to what's going on. Uh, you know, I'm listening to other voices out in the water to see if I'm drifting away or towards them. And that's not even related to me trying to catch a wave. That's me just trying to orient to being out in the void. Um, and then there is a kind of thing, like once you're up, it drives you into yourself, not out of yourself, because it's such a soft, sensitive process of balance. Like you're just making very small movements sometimes to save the whole thing. And so I like that feeling that once I pop up, I'm not looking at the beach or out at the world like other people. I actually go really deep inside myself and pay attention yeah. to every muscle and what it's doing as I feel the world changing around me as I'm whipping down the line. You know, it's, it's just me reacting to sensations at that point. Let's take you and straight that's what into your vestibular sense of balance and orienting that's where right. you are in space. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I love it because it's not related to language. Um, you know, there's no audio book that I'm listening to as I'm doing it. There's no words involved. There's no, uh, being guided. There's no holding somebody's elbow. There's no cane. Um, it's just my body moving in a different way and I'm completely on my own. Uh, and it's just me interacting with water and trying to feel how it's behaving underneath me. And, and I'm sure you know this as well. I will come out of a session and my favorite thing is, and I don't know how to describe this to people who don't. Being start. in your wetsuit. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing is walking out of the water and after a session, the waves that day had a character. Like they have a character. You can surf the same spot every day, but no day is the same. And the waves behave a little differently than they did yesterday, even if it's the same size swell, but you can just, I don't know how to describe it, but the waves have a character that day. Sometimes they're sludgy, sometimes they're hollow, sometimes they're peeling, sometimes they're closing out, sometimes they're jacking really fast, sometimes they're coming in like freight trains, other times they're just soft rollers. 
Um, and I love going out and I don't know what the character of the wave is because I can't see it until I ride a bunch of them. And then when I leave, it's like I've had a character described to me by surfing all day. Wow. Like that was the wave today. And I can still remember certain days because the character of the waves that day was so great. You know, that they just, they made an impression on me like a person. You know, there's like a personality <laughs> to them. That is so cool. I, I love writing about surfing too. I, I have a blog called Surf Cowgirl Chronicles and there are days wherein I've either struggled so much with the sea uh, or with myself and I need to come out and process it somehow, or it's just been such a beautiful day. Um, it, there's a break here locally that I surf and there's this one pod of dolphins that knows us that comes around and they love to catch waves with us. And I've gotten to know some of the individuals mm -hmm. in the pod and just those moments too, that I feel like it's, you know, you want that lightning in a bottle, you want to capture the moment and not lose it where, you know, I've gotten to see the old grandpa and he's come to hang out with me next to my surfboard on the wave. And he's, you know, looked at mm -hmm. me, I can hear him breathing right there. And it's just like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is just so um, phenomenal. And especially during the pandemic where we were so like, you know, indoors behind screens and all, you know, at home together. And I have a son who's about to turn 10. And then there was, you know, working and parenting and mm -hmm. eating. And, you know, my office is no longer a commute elsewhere. It's six steps from my bed to my chair. <laughs> it's like, it was also, you know, crushed in and then going out to see, even with all that anxiety and fear of what was happening in the pandemic, it was like, I'd, I'd paddle out and then suddenly be immersed in a, in a world that didn't know there was a pandemic. You know, the pelicans are there, the, the uh, Garibaldi fish are there, the waves are there, the dolphins are mm -hmm. there, the sky is there. And there was uh, Mike, my, my, I surf with a coach too, whose name is Christian. And, and he and I would meet and we'd stand and look at the water. And there was just this complete sense of uh, relationship to something outside of time or outside of the human experience that like, I think just completely carried me through, uh, you know, in, in, in any way that was spiritual or, or even just the emotional sanity of having something to do that wasn't just being under a roof. Yeah. It's funny that, you know, there's that thing where when you see how many people are being treated right now, effectively for PTSD with surfing and kids with autism out here that are working in surfing and this very inexplicable power that it has for all these different um, cognitive states, right? But as a therapy for so many different cognitive states. And I know, you know, my wife has said, it's like, you know, when you get surfers talking, it's just like your eyes can glaze over. But it's like, there's something there that is so difficult to describe to people who've never done it before. Because if you do it a couple times, it'll just be like you went snowboarding on a weekend. If you get into it, this other layer of it starts to expose itself. This experience you have starts to expose itself. That you'll be like, oh, this is what they were talking about. And you have to be kind of open to, like, I'm not a very spiritual person. And it made me more open to thinking about the world in ways that were so much more uh, receptive, you know, instead of me trying to understand the world, but just receiving the world as it is. And it's very much like the process of a memoir. Like I was saying to my wife the other day, you know, you these waves that you ride, they're storm energy generated from thousands of miles away. And it's literally a wave of energy. That's why it's called a wave. 
uh, it's not a wave of water, it's energy. Right. And the water yeah, that you're riding through the water column. Yeah. So the water you're riding is actually being displaced by the wave energy. So you're you're riding the described shape of, of energy. And this is oceanography for people who don't know that the water is actually staying in the same in the same place, is standing still, right. but the wave is moving through it. That's what's so weird to people. They think you're, the water that's coming into the, the shore has come from out back there, but it's not. It's just you're seeing it described by the water. You're seeing the wave energy described by the water. And like a memoir, it's like a life. This, this wave has traveled thousands of miles, and you've been here to, waiting for it. And it's like your life has come for so many years up to this moment that you're at right now. And you're being asked to duet with it in this moment in time, right? Whatever, wherever your life is at, you have to ride it. Uh, there's such a very deep metaphorical power about surfing and how it relates to the way we interact with time and forces beyond our control. And uh, as I think the book The Drop describes it, this sort of intertidal space that many of us live, which is not quite land, not quite ocean not quite this, not quite that. And I remember feeling that way for so many years as a kid who was living in sight, where I was neither sighted nor blind. And I just started to identify as an intertidal person. Like that's where I feel most comfortable. Yeah, you were talking about the liminal spaces. And as you were speaking about how, you know, early on we said like, oh, I would go back and write it differently. Um, That also, isn't that the break or the beach and the way that the um, entire ecosystem alters and changes over the course of, you know, the winter comes and then the sandbar isn't where it was last year. And now the space, the space that was the space that is the same beach is now totally redefined. And yet it is the same beach. And like, that's our life, right? That's looking back, Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, you get distance on it and you go, but the sandbar is in a different place and everything has changed. And yet nothing has changed. And both of those things are true at the same time. And I guess like, that's what I love so much about writing and about having the relationship with storytelling, you know, especially as, as you're reflecting, even on your own life is like, it's possible that both things are true. It's the same. Mm -hmm. I'm the same person. And yet I've been completely redefined to myself in a way as to become unrecognizable so that there's Mm -hmm. a totally different dance taking place. And I mean, maybe I'll be saying that 20, 30 years from now, if I get a chance to live to be that old, you know, as well, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but certainly looking back through time, I see it that way. It is an intertidal space. It's a liminal space. And, you know, the way that I see through my eyes now, looking back at like my 20 year old self, the thing that I'm sitting with now is like a lot of self forgiveness, um, a lot of more compassion for who I was then. I tend to be really short-tempered with myself. And, you know, that's the area I'm working with now. Also with my writing where I just feel like, oh, it could be better. It could be better. And, um, you know, maybe taking a little easier on myself than I always used to. Well, I think, you know, surfing is a thing like writing that you just do, right? It's not a thing to have. Um, You know, I like writing as a verb, not a noun more than anything else. Mm. And when you, I don't know if you ever read Stephen King's memoir, but he's got this great thing in on writing where no, he, on writing. Yeah. Yeah. He tells this great a while story ago that I read it, but yes, he's got, the, I mean, calling back Stephen King from stand by me. Uh, he's got this great story in it about how he built this writing space in his barn in Maine in Bangor. And, you know, he had this massive oak desk in the middle of the barn loft and a skylight above it. And it was his writing desk and it was at the center of the room and it was, you know, 
really expensive and beautiful and all those things. And it was a statement about where Stephen King was at in his life as a writer, right? That he made it. He was no longer that kid who had a desk in the corner of his attic with a nail on the wall that was bloated with rejection slips that he kept sticking on it. And, but he, he said, you know, that at a certain point he realized that it was toxic what he'd done, that he put writing at the center of his life and therefore had pushed everything else that also mattered in his life to the margins. And he took that desk, got rid of it, got a smaller desk, put it in the corner of that room like he was a kid again, and then put a couch in the middle of the room and his TV and a guitar and space for his kids to hang out with him and jam or watch movies. And he put all that at the center of the room. And I realized like that is very much, I think, kind of the process I've been going throughout here is surfing teaches you this idea of, of an organizing principle in your life. Because when the swell arrives, you don't get to debate with it if it's a good time for it to come. You don't get to say, well, when I'm done work, I'll go and see if you're still there. You know, in town here, we joke, if the swell's good, don't bother trying to go get food because everything's closed, right? Everybody, everybody goes out. And my old mentor, Colin, the surfer mentor I had, the deaf guy, he had said it to me at the beginning. He said, surfing is a life organizing principle. Everything else gets organized around it. And there's some kind of comfort and relief in having something at the center of your life and knowing why it's there. And that you, it's non-negotiable, right? Like when waves arrive, you don't get to say not today. <laughs> you know, it's like take them or you don't get them. So uh, I, I love that shift because in my case, writing was at the center of my life for so long. But I'm trying to figure out another relationship to the work so it's not as all-consuming and that it's got some room to breathe and be fed by other things. Uh, and surfing kind of brought me that understanding that I put the desk in the middle of my room and now I want something else in the middle. And, uh, you know, the ocean's right here. So that's, that's what's in the middle of the room now. Brian Knighton, the musicality of syntax. I know we could talk about surfing and writing forever. I want to thank you for being such a fantastic guest today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was really lovely. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at This Is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer. That's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.